When you look at death in the face of the prospect of losing your own child, you view things very differently and your ability to have real compassion and empathy is increased a hundredfold. Hello, my name is Blair Murphy and this is The Bishop's Office, a podcast where I talk to members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints about their conversion, missionary service and life experiences. This week I'm speaking to Luke and Jerusha Howes about their son Ethan and his battle with cancer. I hope you enjoy it. Great to catch up with you, Luke and Jerusha. How are you this morning? Very well. Well, thank you. Good. Well, it's the first time I've interviewed a couple, so we'll, we'll see how this goes. Um, but I, I wanted to chat to you guys today about, I guess, a period of your life that surrounded um, your son Ethan's cancer diagnosis. But before we get into that, I wondered if you could just, um, for those of you who don't know your family well, maybe introduce us to your family. Okay, so um, we're a family of five. There's me, Luke, and Jerusha. Hi. <laughs> we were married in mid-2004, uh, and I was from Adelaide, Jerusha was from Sydney, and when we got married, we lived in Sydney for about 10 and a half years. So um, we, uh, we moved back to Adelaide in 2015. Uh, we have three children. Blaze is the oldest, he's 14 now, Ethan's 12, and Vienna is 10. And so uh, if, if we jump straight into the story then, um, how old was Ethan when he was diagnosed? What type of cancer did he have? And I guess how long has he been in remission now? Okay, so uh, Ethan was diagnosed in August of 2013. Um, he had turned five in March, so just shy of five and a half. He had stage five bilateral nephroblastoma with metastases to the lungs, which means he had tumours in both kidneys and they had spread to his lungs. The biggest tumour was on the left side and it was um, as big as a lunchbox. So it was really big. Uh, and then the tumour on the right side was the size of a grapefruit. So yeah, I always compared it to the size of like your quad scriptures. This quad scripture case, it was about that size. Like yeah. it, you, it just really large, and then was pressing in against his other organs, like his stomach, and um, just squishing his whole insides because he was just a little five-year-old. And so, in hindsight, there were a few signs. That, you know, as a parent, just regret and why didn't we find this sooner? And you know, how could we let the tumor get that big before we could find it? But he didn't really have any of the normal symptoms that come along with this form of cancer. Yeah, there were just a few things over probably the month leading up to it that seemed odd, but no one thing specifically that would make you go to a doctor. Um, but we were increasingly concerned for him. Um, one day the kids were all running around. It was, it was getting late and um, they were chasing and... One of them ran through, we had this big glass sliding door and closed it. And Ethan came a minute later and didn't realize they'd closed the door and he just snapped into the glass so hard and that he, he fell backwards and he had a sore head and neck and shoulder afterwards. And so I booked him into the osteo just to make sure he was all aligned. And so um, it was actually the osteo I'm treating him that said, look, there's something wrong with him. There's something not right um, in, his, in his stomach. Um, and you need to go to a doctor. Because it was hard, wasn't it? It was really hard, but yeah. she's just said in working with him, she said, I just, I can't line this up properly. There's something, there's something not right. 
you need to go to a doctor. I was like, oh, okay. She's like, no, I'm serious. You're going to take him to a doctor tomorrow and I'm going to phone you tomorrow night to make sure that you did. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, and uh, yeah, long story short, we went to Dr. Friday afternoon, went in at 4.30 um, and he, he said straight away, I think your son has cancer and you need to get scans and blood tests tonight. So by seven o'clock Friday night, we um, had the results of ultrasound, x-ray and blood tests, all of which said he had cancer. What did you know at this point? I can, I can only imagine sort of what, what the thoughts must have been sort of swirling around your heads when, you know, the doctor's like, hey, I think there might be something seriously wrong here. But what were you thinking at, at this stage? Um, well, I think for the previous couple of weeks, Ethan had also been waking up in the night, crying a lot in pain. Well, we know later it was crying in pain, but he'd be just screaming in the night and we'd wake him up and then it was just like he was having a bad dream and he'd go back to sleep. Um, he never talked about pain. No, he it never talked like about pain. Terrors. Yeah, that's right. But we, we figure afterwards that it must have been the pain. So for weeks, we knew, as Jerusha described, we knew something was wrong and then we thought it was stomach aches and stomach issues. And then that first time when Jerusha saw the doctor, he said he's either got leukemia or a, a tumour of some sort in his spleen or kidney um, and ended up being in the kidney. So I think it was very much a process of finding out as we went along. So that first night we didn't really know and then like when we first spoke to the doctor, then we found out it was a tumour later that night, but it, was, it wasn't until Monday we found out that it was the two tumours and I guess that it had started to spread. Tell me about receiving that news. Were you... Um, so you've, you've gone for the scans. Did they call you? What happened? So we, were, we checked into hospital Monday morning because that night he was like screaming through the night. And so um, we checked in at Westmead's Children's Hospital on the Saturday morning and they pretty much just gave him pain relief until the Monday. And then um, Monday, it was meant to be first thing and they kept delaying the whole day. So the poor kid had fasted almost 24 hours as a five-year-old um, by the time he went in for the, the scan to get the full results. And so that whole time, Friday night through to the Monday evening, we thought it was just the one tumour in the one side. And so, you know, they tell you not to do internet search because it just freaks you out. But of course you do. And we're like, okay, tumour in one, one kidney, they'll just take out the kidney. Um, he'll have the other one, he'll have a bit of chemo, you know, we can do this. Um, as far as childhood cancer goes, it's a good prognosis. But yeah, finding out that he had tumours in both kidneys and his lungs was devastating. It was really hard. Like they, they pretty much said, we're going to blast him with chemo and three things can happen. The chemo can do nothing. The chemo could actually make the tumours bigger and explode. And both those first two scenarios that's it, there's nothing they can do. Or third chance is it could shrink the tumours and that's the only thing that will save his life. And they pretty much said, you know, 33% chance um, for each of those things. I think it was at that point I, I at least felt very much that we were in the hands of the Lord when you realise there are these three options and you can't control any of them. And so whatever was going to happen was going to be the will of the Lord. And we clearly had to do everything that we could to um, be entitled to the blessings of the Lord. But he was in the hands of the Lord. And um, that was, there was not much more that we could do to change that situation other than, um, I guess, be as, as faithful as we could be and as supportive and, um, and as positive as we could be in that time. 
I had an experience. So then Friday night he got diagnosed. I didn't sleep a single minute that whole night. Like I remember just lying in bed, just being wide awake. And the next morning when we decided we we're going to check into the hospital straight away, we, you know, had to drop our other children off somewhere and run a few errands. And I was, I'd run into Woolies just to grab a couple of things. And, you know, I felt dreadful. I'd had this, you know, you just feel heart sick. My whole body felt heavy. I hadn't slept. My head was aching. My eyes were sore. And um, I get to the checkout and the young teenager was said, oh, how are you today? And in that split second before I responded, I was thinking, are you serious? Can you not see <laughs> that I look terrible? I feel terrible. And the words from the hymn came to my mind in the quiet heart is hidden, sorry that the eye can't see. And so I just said, yeah, I'm really well, thank you. And we chatted like nothing was wrong. And that was just something that I carried with me that, um, okay, the pain, the stress, the heartache, I'd keep that on the inside um, because we needed to be brave and strong for our children. Um, they couldn't see a mum that was falling apart. Like they needed all the positivity that, that they could get. And so, um, yeah, that, that little prompting from the Lord is what helped me. No, thanks for sharing that. Luke, I think you mentioned, I guess, turning the outcome of the treatment and, and all of that over to the Lord. You had to do that because there was no other option. But it, was, it a, was it a natural and obvious thing to do or was it a bit of a process at arriving at that feeling? I, th I think I can probably say that, that it, was, it was a natural thing for us. Coming to terms that the results might not go the way that you want them isn't an easy thing to grapple with. But when we were probably 33 or 34 at the time, and I think we have both lived our lives um, in a way that had directed them towards serving the Lord and being submissive our whole lives. And so then it, it didn't need to be a significant shift like death red bed repentance or, um, oh no, now we've had this, this big shock. Um, we need to get our lives in order. I think it was, it was the thing that we are uh, living our lives following the gospel of Jesus Christ and the covenant path had prepared us for. And, um, I had felt in the months leading up to this that we had lived very fortunate lives. And um, I don't think I could say we had, I had an inkling that it, something bad was going to happen, but I was just very aware in those months leading up to Ethan being sick, that we had lived very fortunate lives, um, that we had been spared um, a lot of pain and, and heartache and that at times of your life, those will come. And, and I guess I was, I was probably being prepared for that. And so I think we just needed to keep living a faithful life. And if I can just add one comment to that, I was serving on the high council at the time and I loved my calling. I really enjoyed it. And I called the stake president or I was going to call the stake president. And I said to Jerusha, I said, look, I, I want to keep serving, but obviously we've got a lot going on right now. And Jerusha said to me, you absolutely need to keep serving because we need every blessing from the Lord that we can get. And so that was the message when I called the state president to say, hey, we've got this going on. I don't want to let anyone down, but I want to do all I can. But I think that was a mark of Jerusha's faith as well, that her thoughts immediately just pointed to, to service and doing all that we could to, to honour our covenants. Mm. So, so what happens next? Talk to me about sort of 
the treatment and and what the new reality for your lives was? Well, I think there was an overall plan, which basically was um, chemotherapy for a number of months with the aim of shrinking the tumours. And then they would do an operation. The operation would remove um, the kidneys and try and preserve as much of the right kidney where the tumour was smaller as possible. And then more chemotherapy to mop up anything that was remaining. Is that what you... Radiation. Radiation was one of those surprises that came probably halfway through, didn't it? Well, Uh, we knew it was there, but we had actually had a big fast that um, we, we kind of thought he's having all this all this chemo, all these drugs. The reason they said they were having radiation was for the spots on the lungs. So we instantly prayed and we had a big fast that you know, people from Morialta joined in, people from all over the world joined in. And because um, he, he had regular scans. And the next scan after that fast, the lungs were completely clear. The spots had all been removed. And um, we definitely felt that that was a direct miracle from our fasting and prayer. And so in our minds, he didn't have to have radiation. Um, But yeah, the doctors insisted upon it. So yeah, it was intensive chemo, surgery, radiation, and then more chemo. You know, the first couple of weeks were horrific because your body's never had chemo before. It's not used to it. And, you know, his body went into chaos and he's only small. You know, I remember one day, we just exerted all our energy to get him to eat. And by the end of the day, he'd eaten six blueberries. (laughs) And so, and, and, you know, you're trying to help your other children at the same time. And so it's a real juggling game. Um, After a few weeks, he got used to the chemo and we kind of knew what the pattern was Um, within two hours of, of having the chemo. He'd feel really, really sick and be vomiting and he wouldn't eat probably for about three days. And then day four, he'd feel a little bit better and start to eat. And day five, he'd eat a bit more. And, and day six and seven, he was feeling a bit better, a bit more energy within himself. And um, yeah, he'd eat lots and then you'd start the cycle again. And so um, that was was life for, for three months. The chemo did affect all of his nerves in his body. He kind of lost his reflexes and... Um, had nerve pain in his toes. He'd wake up screaming, just trying to rip his toenails off because of the nerve pain. One of his eyes stopped rotating uh, from nerve damage. And so, you know, he'd go to look at something and that one eye would stay in the same position. So he'd be cross-eyed. And so he'd be banging into things and he didn't have reflexes. And so we'd have to follow him around the house and just constantly try and catch him as he fell. Um, but all of that stuff yeah. um, got got better in That's time it. as well once the treatment finished. Because the whole treatment, I think, from beginning to end was about a year, yeah. um, wasn't it? Yeah. So, but um, he had massive shrinkage. Yeah, yeah. The tumours shrunk massively. In fact, the doctors used to call him the Mormon miracle um, because he had larger shrinkage than what they had ever seen before. But it still wasn't enough to save any of the, the left kidney so when he had his it was funny we got a full diagnosis on my birthday and then his surgery happened to be on Luke's birthday on the 10th of December so um, they took out the left kidney and 40% of the right kidney but yeah so the surgery was a success and then um, they don't let you rest you go straight into radiation which was every day for 10 days um, finishing on finished on Christmas Eve and um, then we got a few days off over Christmas and then we got a phone call saying 
oh, look, we just got more results back. We didn't find everything properly in the lab after his surgery and we, we messed up. He needs to have um, a higher grade of radiation and in a different area as well. And so then we were back in radiation every day for a couple of weeks and, um, yeah, the radiation made him really sick. He just mm. vomited nonstop that whole time and didn't eat and didn't do anything. Um, but then we got through that and then it was just cleanup chemo. So there was nothing that they could see left in the body, but they said, you know, there can be small particles here and there. So we're just going to give more chemo to make sure we've got everything. And so it was back to weekly chemo, but at lighter doses. And so he did okay for the first few weeks, but then his body started to get a bit sick of, of the treatment and um, he actually lost all the platelets in his body by the end. So he had this yeah, liver disease from, from not having any platelets. So he'd get these bleeding noses and we would just have to rush to hospital straight away for a transfusion because he'd bleed out if we didn't. So we had a, a period of a month where we were getting platelet transfusions every second day. And yeah, and that kind of went through to the through to the end. So um, he's yeah been in remission for six years. Oh, that's great. That sounds so full on. Um, and I guess I'm keen to understand emotionally and spiritually how you are being supported and carried during this time. You know, you talked about Luke being there overnight. Um, I presume you're working during the day, Luke, and then going into hospital all night. You know. What's happening in these quiet moments when, you know, there's nothing but darkness and the beep of the IV machines? What's going through your mind and heart during those times? Um, I think maybe there's a few aspects we can, we can touch on there. Um, one was I think they were, they were really tender moments when I was in the hospital um, at night. So you're right. I was in the process of actually starting a new business at that time. We were, we were just about to launch in the next couple of months. And so I think the early, early sales I did in that business were from like hospital lobby kitchen, hospital lobby kitchens and floors. And so, but we made it work. Jerusha would come in, she'd drop the kids off at school or somewhere and then come into the hospital, look after him during the day. And I'd take off and go to work. And, um, but at, at night, I think they were, you just realize how fragile life is. And so those hours I would have with Ethan, um, where he'd be asleep in the hospital bed and I was on a, like a little fold out couch that was next to him. It was like a, yeah, just a, a chair that folded out. I'd sleep on that. And yeah, those machines would beep like crazy. I don't know. No one could get any sleep really, but, um, you'd, we'd just talk and we'd tell each other that we, we loved each other and um, we'd talk about the day and how Ethan was feeling. Like he was very positive throughout everything. Like he was um, like, he obviously had a lot of physical discomfort, but um, it was, it was just a really tender time that we felt for each other and the love and outreach that we felt from people all over the world was just remarkable, whether they were sending us emails or messages or presents for Ethan or just praying for us and for him. Um, it was just remarkable. And we often said during that time that we shed a lot more tears over the goodness and kindness of others than we did around his condition. Um, um, like the, the school, the school and church communities that we had around us, they basically divided up the weeks um, for three or three or four meals each. And we had dinner on our, on our table every single night for months. And uh, we would, we were just reduced to reduced to tears of gratitude and, and love so often. 
Mm. Yeah, we'd have Relief Society sisters just, we had one sister come to the door each week and she'd say, I'm not leaving until you give me your ironing. Um, just the amount, of, the amount of help and support we got was amazing. And you have to remember, it wasn't just Ethan we were seeing. In a children's hospital, in a cancer ward, it's a very daunting place to be. And there were days where the nurses were all really quiet and subdued um, because the child had passed away. And you're always wondering, or just hoping that that's not going to be your child. Um, but I think when you when you look at death in the face of the prospect of losing your own child, you view things very differently, and your ability to to have real compassion and empathy is increased a hundredfold. And you know your heart reaches out to these people so bad. And you know we always just used to be so grateful for the diagnosis he did have because it was so much better than, um, than a lot of the kids that, that we came in contact with. But um, we, yeah, we definitely just felt supported and buoyed up by so many people around us. I felt it was a very unifying experience for our ward and our school community as well. Um, and not just, just meals and, and help for Ethan, but, you know, I had... One friend, um, he has a daughter the same age as Vienna, and, you know, she had Vienna over every chemo day. She said to me at the beginning, I'll take Vienna every chemo day. So it's, it's consistent and the same for Vienna. And, you know, Vienna loved those days. And, you know, she had sleepovers with, the, with my sister and, you know, the people helped with Blaze. And a few times, like Phil and Judy were mission president and wife in Sydney at the time. There were a couple of times that, um, Judy came over to help ways with school projects or school homework because, you know, I, I just couldn't divide myself um, enough times to to get to everyone. So yeah, we definitely had a lot of a lot of help and support. Were there any other pivotal spiritual moments during this time that you um, feel to share at this moment? Well, a few. There were a few things that were going on. <laughs> um, we were in the hospital for 10 days straight and then we'd got home. We'd only been home for a couple of days and it was state conference. And I hadn't been anywhere other than hospital and home for that whole time. And we wouldn't leave Ethan with anyone. It was just Luke or I. Um, but we decided that I would go to the Saturday night session of conference and that Luke would go on the Sunday. And so I was sitting <laughs> in conference and I was so tired. Like I just wanted to be in bed. I was so exhausted. Um, but I thought, no, just, just go. And um, Elder Hamula was actually there to rearrange the stake. And um, he got up at the beginning of the session and, and said, um, I'd actually like to invite a sister on the spot to give a five-minute talk on faith. You know, Jerusha House, will you come and speak to us? And I was just like a, bit, like a deer <laughs> that caught in the headlights. He had visited us a couple of nights earlier, hadn't he? Yeah, on the, the Friday night. On the Friday before. night, he had come and visited us and got to know Ethan and a bit more about the situation. He was very tender-hearted to us. He was very, yeah. very kind. Thank you. Yeah, and so as I got up to speak on faith, it just hit me how much my mission had prepared me for this trial. Um, so I'd served in Italy and Malta, which um, is, is tough going. Like, it's a very... Catholic culture and it's very different and I learned about faith and it actually became a theme and a focus of my whole mission I studied faith constantly 
um, went through the scriptures just looking for examples of faith and what it meant. And so I pretty much shared with everyone what I knew about faith and how it connected with miracles and that God works by law. And the, the equation for miracles is faith plus works. And, you know, if we have true faith and we do the works, then God will give us the miracle and he has to give us miracles because that's what he has promised. And so it was really important to us that we, we still did everything we could. And I remember saying, I'd much rather be in bed right now because I've hardly slept for the last two weeks, but I want Heavenly Father to save my little boy. And, and so I'm here. And there were many weeks where church was the only place we went. But if there was only one place we were going to go in the week, it would be church so that we could take the sacrament with our ward members. Now, when he, when he wasn't well enough, the, the, the priesthood came and gave it to him. But um, it was definitely a strong experience for me that just reminded me of what I'd learned um, and what I knew about God and how God worked and um, that we had to do everything in our power to be faithful. Before Ethan's surgery, like a few months into treatment, there was um, a little boy in our stake that passed away from heart disease. And um, it really shook me to the core. And I felt genuine heartache and heaviness for this family for days and um, went to the funeral and I just felt so sorry for them. And I felt that the greater test of my faith would actually be if Ethan didn't survive, that I'd have to have more faith <laughs> um, to not get the, the outcome that, that we were praying for. And so, yeah, just a lot of tender moments. One of the miracles in this time would be anytime Ethan had a fever, it was part of cancer treatment. Um, if they came in contact with the sniffles or anyone with just the slightest, any form of germ, um, because his immune system wasn't there, he would get a high fever. And so the instructions we were told very clearly in the beginning, we were given a thermometer and told to check his temperature you know, twice daily. If his temperature ever reached 38, we had to go to hospital immediately. And when that happened, um, he'd be on antibiotics for two to four days, depending on, on how bad it was, and it postponed treatment. So they couldn't have chemo again until their blood counts went up. So you really didn't want a fever, one, because you didn't want to go back to hospital and have the beeping machines all night, and two, it just extended your treatment plan. And so he had a few of these and every time I would pray and pray that the fever would go away. I'm like, I kind of delay a little, take him in because I was thinking, no, I've got the faith. I'm just going to pray and it's just going to go away. And it never did. <laughs> so we always had to go to hospital. Um, but then on the moving day, when we were just moving within in Sydney, um, woke up and Ethan's temperature was 39 and he really wasn't well. And I was like, what are we going to do? They had the removalists knocking on the door. I called Luke's parents. They had his own conference. My parents had something on. There was no one else I trusted to take him to hospital. And um, I just said, well, you've, you've just got to give him a blessing and we're just going to pray and this fever's just got to go. <laughs> um, and so Luke gave him the blessing and, and went to work and, and the fever went. And it was the only time it went. And it's just a lesson on how Heavenly Father works. Like often we want things in order for it to be more convenient for us. But we could survive with all the other trips to hospital. Like it was annoying, but we could do it. But then when I really genuinely needed it, Heavenly Father lifted that burden and we're able to get through that day. Often in life, there are things Heavenly Father needs us to get through. 
um, not every day is going to be easy and not every burden is going to be easy, but he can't remove all our burdens because then we don't learn and we don't stay humble and we don't stay reliant on the Lord. But when we really do need him, he's there. Like he's always there. He'll always get us through. But yeah, I've always reflected on, on that. Mm, no, that's a great lesson. Luke, was there any experiences that popped to mind? Uh, yeah, I think the main one for me that was the most the most meaningful maybe out of this whole experience was we had a family fast on a Sunday fairly early on. And since his diagnosis, I had felt inner turmoil. Um, and I've always been one who's consciously strived to have peace in my heart, um, to avoid stress. and But it was just an inner turmoil and I didn't know what was going to happen to him. Um, there was uncertainty and it was it just wasn't wasn't a good feeling. And we had that that family fast after it must have been a week, I guess. As we closed our fast that night, I felt a profound peace come upon me. And this is this is one of the gifts of the spirit. And I experienced it in a way that I haven't hadn't experienced it ever before so palpably because the spirit rested upon me and I think upon our family in generally. And it lasted for months. That spirit just rested upon me and took the stress away. It took all the turmoil away. And when I was staying in the hospital for those initial weeks, like it just became a, a feeling of peace. And then I went back to work and after a couple of weeks and was in the office that day and the people I worked with said, oh, how's he doing? What's happening? And I started telling them what was happening. And I, it suddenly dawned on me just how dire the situation was, but I had been completely shielded from that. But I realized that I, like I was opening myself up to doubt and to fear and like there was no way we could escape the realities of the situation, but I just needed to focus on the faith and the trust in the Lord because that was granting me peace, just an amazing peace. And it's, um, and on that fast Sunday, accompanying this feeling of peace was the feeling that, everything would be okay. And I knew at the time, it was very clear to me that everything being okay didn't mean that he was necessarily going to live, that everything would be successful, but it did mean that everything would be okay no matter what happened because the Lord was in control and we're in the Lord's hands. We're an eternal family sealed together forever and that, that everything would be okay. And, um, and that was, that was a great blessing to me. And I don't think there's any way you can manufacture peace for yourself. Like that's just a gift that the Lord gives. And I was, was able to feel it for, for a long time throughout this experience. Was there a moment when the doctors came to you and said, Hey, he's in the clear, you know, I think we've, I think we've beat this thing. Talk to me about no. that. <laughs> no, we wish and we would ask, and they'd be like, "Oh no, we can't, we can't say anything." Not, not until the end, not until the end. Like, yeah, I think we, when the tumors started shrinking, when he was first on chemotherapy, it made us feel really good, and that was even in like in the first month, wasn't it? We noticed because at the very beginning, you could see this lump protruding out of his side where the the tumor was, and when that started to go down, even before they'd done any more scans, we. Like that felt really good, but no, they um they always sort of sit on the fence with things and um and 
he would then have quarterly and six monthly and annual checkups for years after that. And every time we'd go in for those checkups, I think we knew he was in the clear, but we also had friends who had reoccurrences with their children after years. And so there was always a, a few nerves on those mornings when we'd go in for tests, weren't there? Well, I wouldn't sleep properly for a couple of days leading up to every scan afterwards and just that, okay, what, what will I do if, if if this is what we get told, if it come, if it's come back, what are we going to do? Um, but yeah, this year we've just graduated to annual checkups and yeah, it feels a lot better now. <laughs> but no, they don't give you any hope along the way. Um, they don't make any promises. They don't want to get your hopes up for anything. If I could just share one more thing um, as well, Bishop, it was what I learned about supporting others as they go through trials. I think I've always felt a tender heart for those who go through trials, but I wouldn't know what to say. And so often I would like, I wouldn't reach out because I wouldn't know what to say to them, but you'd have them in your prayers. And I learned so much. I think we, we learned just as a family so much from people who just reached out. And that's when I realized nobody knows what to say when somebody's going through a hard time, there's no perfect thing to say, but you just say something and you just tell people you're thinking of them and you love them and you care for them and ask if you can help or just jump in and help. And so I, I'm definitely not perfect at it, but I've really learned that lesson rather than just hanging back and thinking, I don't know what to say is just, just do something and people will appreciate the love and the, and the kindness and the compassion that you have for them. Yeah, definitely. I decided early on that I wouldn't be offended by anyone's foot and mouth seats or whatever, because some people say some funny things. But it was interesting meeting some other parents who'd say, you know, this friend, they've been a lifelong friend and they haven't reached out to me at all. And they're dead to me now. They're dead to me. Like in my hour of me, they just haven't said anything. I'm like, well, they might not know what to say. Well, no. And so it's, everyone takes it differently. And we just went in with the attitude that we'd be grateful for anyone's outpouring of, of love and any outpouring of love uh, you're grateful for. Um, I also learned a lot about service um, and, you know, the amount of people that say, oh, if you need anything, call me. But I wasn't going to call anyone. Uh, you, we were already getting so many meals or different help and you kind of, as dumb as it sounds, it kind of felt like I'd reached the cap on how much service our family could receive. And, um, you know, the people that in the end were giving a service were people that would knock at the door and say, I'm here and this is what I'm here for and I'm not going to you let me do it for you. Um, so if you, if you really want to help or serve someone, you've just got to do it. Don't wait to be assigned. Um, don't just say, oh, let me know. You've, you've just got to rock up with that meal or rock up to help with a child or help with a sibling or, you know, whatever the myriad ways we can serve. It's just a matter of you've just got to get in and do it. Oh, that's, that's great. Maybe just to draw our conversation to a bit of a close, you could each take a, uh, an opportunity to maybe talk about I guess how this experience has changed you um, and how have you determined to live your life as a result of the experience that you've had? I wish I could say I had this amazing thing to tell you. And I was thinking about this last night in preparation for the, for the call, but I still have kind of found within myself the, the constant pride cycle like coming out of it. You know, I just thought I was going to be the most faithful, hard-serving person forever. You know, I promised the Lord I would, you know, save my child for me and, and you know, uh, this is the person I'm going to be. But, you know, you slip and you fall and you have hard times and 
and uh, it's just constantly being humbled and repenting and, and trying again. Like I, I'm not a perfect person and this experience didn't make me a perfect person, but this experience helped me learn more about the Lord and how he can work in our lives if we're doing our part. Um, it all comes back to us. You know, we're the ones that, that have to let him in, but he's always there. And so, yeah, I guess we just keep moving forward, doing everything we can to be worthy of, of the spirit and keeping covenants is just so important. And I really felt the importance of regular temple attendance, not just to do the work for ancestors, but we need that constant reminder of what the covenants are that we have made and continue to make. Um, because it's easier to keep covenants if you have that constant reminder. Um, I think um, there are there are a few things I think I, I wanted to remember and um, and learn from the experience. And um, one I just mentioned before, which is actually reaching out and trying to lift other people when they're going through a really tough time, because we all do, and everybody goes through tough times, and we really need to support each other in that. I realised sitting in the sort of the waiting room, waiting for treatment or waiting for doctor's appointments, you realise that cancer and other diseases and misfortune, completely indiscriminate. There were migrant families there. There were rich people. There were poor people. There were just people from all walks of life. But we were all just children of God sitting there trying the best to do what we could. And, and it was in those times that I realised how meaningful the gospel of Jesus Christ really is because we have a perspective on everything on the eternities and um, that, that life and our earthly life is just one small part of that. And that, that was a, a remarkable blessing to us. Right? That feeling of peace that I mentioned that most people who went through this experience don't have. And so I guess I share, share my testimony of the reality that the Lord does support and succor his people and that when we open ourselves to the Lord, he lifts our burdens and he lightens them. He doesn't always take away the trial or the pain completely, or sometimes it's not his will that it be removed, but that the gospel is real. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way to return to heavenly father. And so I think I always, um, I always coming out of that experience wanted to make sure that was at the forefront of my life. But as Jerusha said, there's, uh, there's an ongoing process of, uh, of still working through mortality and trying to work to become the person you want to be and have the family you want to be and work through the daily struggles of, of, uh, of raising children and, and trying to be a better person. But um, that was absolutely my experience and my testimony that we are all in the Lord's hands and we need to trust him and that in his hands, he'll look after us. Well, thank you for taking the time to revisit some of these both precious and really harrowing memories. It's been heartbreaking and inspirational to hear the, the experiences that you've both been through. Thanks, Bishop. Thank you. That concludes my conversation with Luke and Jerusha. It's a pretty tough conversation to have, and I'm just so grateful that they were willing to be so open and sharing their experience with us. That's all I have for you today. Until I speak to you again here in the Bishop's Office.